So it's good to be back again. Um, well, you know, it was a tough week uh, of recovery. Um, I, I'm not used to it. The last time I was sick was in 2015, 14, a long time ago. Um, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, I was expecting more from COVID. Uh, <laughs> and it fell short. Uh, but I hope that the message from last week uh, came across loud and clear. Uh, for those who were here and those who, I would say, remained awake during the video. I know, because if, if I'm here and people are sleeping, there's obviously people be sleeping through the video. So hopefully you guys stayed awake. Amen. Did you guys stay awake throughout the video? Who was here last week? Who was here last week? Show of hands. All right. That's good. I hope you guys stayed awake during that video uh, because that's the downside, right? You're watching a video, you, you know, you fall asleep. Uh, hopefully everybody stayed up because uh, that was the final installment of the mini-series on Christian foundations or basics of Christianity that we have been taking up. Uh, that's why I had to play that video to remind you where we're at as far as our uh, journey through Exodus is concerned. But uh, going back a few weeks, uh, we've been uh, answering the why, the who, the how, the from what and for what questions of salvation. And hopefully um, it was clear. Hopefully you guys uh, got it. Uh, hopefully you guys are still thinking about it, meditating on it, okay? Because this is probably the, not probably, but the most important thing that you have in your life right now. Do you guys agree with that? No? Do you guys agree that this is the most important thing, salvation that God gave to us in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the most important thing that we have in our lives right now. Nothing else comes close. You understand? One of these days, we're all going to die. And then when that happens, this is the only thing that you can hold on to. So you better be better. And the Bible calls us that we better understand it, better value it, um, find joy in it. Not like faces that I'm seeing right now. Uh, <laughs> this is one thing that I don't miss, like looking at people's faces because it kind of just like, brings me down. Uh, <laughs> hopefully we did get that. Hopefully we do take this seriously. Hopefully we did um, recover the joy of our salvation uh, as we took it up again. Um, and hopefully uh, we understood uh, what happened to us as human beings. Uh, why did God have to save us? Uh, hopefully we remember because Adam and Eve lost their way. They missed the mark. They sinned. That's why God had to save us. And what was their sin? Was it just disobedience? Um, no, it wasn't just disobedience. Uh, they took for themselves knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And that means that they put themselves in the position of God to determine what is right and what is wrong for themselves. That's their foundational when it comes to sin. That's what it is that we all have. And that's why we do what we do. Because we think we know better. We think what we do is right. Uh, even though there is this moral barometer in us that tells us it's wrong, we justify it, make it right. Uh, that's, the, that's the fruit of all uh, but not the fruit, but the root of all sin is that. Uh, 
thinking that we are God because of what happened uh, in the Garden of Eden at that very first time that human beings sinned. And when, they, when Adam and Eve did this, uh, again, they began to think that they were God. They began to set standards for themselves of what is right and what is wrong. Um, and again, justify their actions and even judge other people's actions based on what they think is right. Isn't that what we do right now? And that's where it came from. Uh, so because of this, God banished them from the garden, but not before God declared curses and consequences for all of those who were involved in the fall. First, God cursed the serpent. Then God declared consequences of Adam and Eve's sins. But remember, they did, he did not curse them. Okay? We, we have to always remember that. We have to look at the Bible from that lens. That even though God can and could have started over, he didn't. He chose to save. He chose to restore. Um, that in itself is good news. Right? And despite the reputation of Genesis chapter 3 as the fall chapter, the middle of this chapter contained the proto-evangelium, as people would call it, the first gospel. In it, God prophesied that there will one day come a Savior born of the seed of the woman who will destroy the seed of the serpent, but will also end up being destroyed in the process. Um, and then from then on, the story of the Bible focuses on who this seed is going to be and when will this seed arrive. And throughout the story of the Old Testament, there have been multiple seed bearers, some of whom typified the actual seed of the woman. Um, but as the Old Testament came to a close, and after a 400-year silence, as far as the biblical accounts and scrolls are concerned, the New Testament came in bearing good news. What was the, the news of the New Testament? That the seed has finally come. The seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15 is finally here. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the central figure in, when it comes to God's redemptive history. The one whom the Old Testament has spoken about and the New Testament has revealed. It is through Jesus, the prophesied victory over the seed of the serpent and over death will find its fulfillment. Uh, like I said last week, it is through Jesus that God began his kingdom building process. This is what we uh, have been saved Four, to continue the kingdom building process that Jesus and his disciples began 2,000 years ago. And if you were listening last week, how did we define the kingdom of God? Or how did I define it? Okay. First, in terms of ownership. Okay. Right now, we can say that we are in God's kingdom because he owns everything. But unfortunately, the prince and the, of the power of this world is not God. Who is it? Who? Satan. I heard somebody say Jesus. No. Not yet. He will come and get this. But not yet. Right now, the prince of the power of this, the power of this world is Satan. People are not under God's rule right now. And we define the kingdom of God not just as ownership. We define it in a couple of ways, right? And I borrowed it from Graham Goldsworthy and Vaughn Roberts. The kingdom of God, as they define it, is God's people in God's place 
under God's rule and blessing. Can you repeat that with me? What is the kingdom of God? God's in. Right now, who are God's people? Everybody? No, believers. Are they in God's place? So to speak, yeah, because God owns, but really we're not. And are we under God's rule? So to speak, some of us are, but not perfectly. But most of the people of this world are not. So can we say that the kingdom of God is already here? Yes and no. <laughs> right? If the kingdom of God is God's people under God's rule in God's place, then believers should be where the kingdom of God is. Right? We're God's people. Although, yeah, we're not perfectly under God's rule. We're in between. We're not really in God's place, but he resides in us. It, it, are we agreed with that, uh, when it comes to that? So it's kind of here, but it's kind of not. <laughs> but when Jesus came and he said that the kingdom of God, of God is at hand, was he talking about Christians or was he talking about himself? He's talking about himself because he is the only one that is the perfect person of God under the submission, perfect submission to God and under God's rule. And it's where God resides. In fact, is God. That's what I said last week. Um, so when we say, when we ask that question, what's the answer to the question, what are we saved for? It's that kingdom building. You're saved to continue the kingdom building that Jesus started. We are to gather the people of God. How? Through the gospel. We are to call them to humble submission to the authority and the rule of God in their lives and ultimately grow into becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Bodies of these people are temples of the Holy Spirit. And then one day we'll be in eternal fellowship with God. This is our hope. And this has been God's desire all along. God created man and woman in his image to be with him so he can fellowship and have intimacy with them. And when sin came into the picture, this relationship was broken and God has been actively pursuing it ever since. Let me say that again. God has been pursuing, not us. God has been pursuing ever since. We've been running away. That's why he has to pursue because we keep running away. God has been actively pursuing that relationship ever since, and we can argue that that was the main purpose of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to bring us back into relationship with God. That's the theme of the story of the whole of the book of Exodus. From the start, God has been preserving a people to himself. He started with Noah, then Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, 
And then the descendants of Jacob multiplied and God made them his people. And throughout the story of Exodus, God is trying to put these people under his rule, under his authority. But before he could do that, he has to make them his people first. Because at the start of Exodus, whose people were the Israelites? Pharaohs. That's why you don't want to let them go. This is my people. I want to do what I want with them. But God, in his power, through the display, through the plagues, got his people back. Freed them from the slavery of Egypt and under the rule of Pharaoh. And now, as they exit Egypt in the Exodus, God's purpose is to bring them where? To the promised land, to his place. But before he could bring them there, we're missing one step in the kingdom building process. First is God's people bringing into God's place. What's the other step? They have to be brought under the rule of God. They're not used to it. They're used to the rule of Pharaoh. But now God has to bring them under his rule, the way he runs things. That's where we pick up the story. So after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in verses 21 to 28, Moses told the Israelites again the commands uh, to, for the Passover. And who did he tell it to? First, the elders. And then the elders are supposed to tell the people. Isn't that what happened during the first time God gave a command to Adam and Eve? Who did he tell it to first? Adam first. And Adam was supposed to go tell his wife. Obviously, his wife listened, but not close enough. Um, and so that's what's happening again. God gave Moses the rule in order for them to be saved. Not just the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the rules for Passover, what, they, what they're supposed to do, so that they will be saved from this 10th plague, right? And this time, thankfully, the Israelites actually did it. After Moses and Aaron told the people, or just Moses told the people, or sorry, told the elders, the elders told the people, they actually listened and obeyed. And then what happened? God did what God said he would do. What did he do? Send the 10th plague. Now let me just note something here before we can continue. And I'm going to say it like this. Sometimes it's easier to swallow when God fulfills promises rather than actually fulfilling threats. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes it's easier for us to accept the fact that God fulfills promises. But sometimes it's hard for us to accept the fact that he also comes through when he threatens. We're quick to believe promises of God, and we should, because he is faithful. But we should be quick to believe his threats as well. 
It's not like God is not going to go through threats and only fulfill promises. What did Joshua say before he died to the people of Israel? Remember what God did for you, how he fought for you, how he got you this land, how he did all this stuff for you. But if you drift away from God, remember also his threats. He's going to do those as well. And I think that kind of mindset comes from this one-dimensional view of God, that he is only a God of love, that he only wants what's best for us, which is all true. But it translates to, uh, when, God, when we think that God wants what's best for us, it translates to, oh, God will never give me anything that will hurt or nothing that will make me sad. Is that true of God? No, but that kind of thinking about God, again, is even though, yes, he's a God of love, he's a God of grace, he's a God of mercy, uh, that kind of thinking is not very biblical. It's not the full picture of who God is because if God is faithful, he will be faithful in both promises and threats. He can't be any other way. That's why we need salvation, right? Because what is the threat to those who are against God? Destruction. Will he go through with it? Oh, you, you better believe it. You can't sit here and think, no, no, God's not going to go through with that. I hear that a lot, right? Especially working on Sundays. Yeah, I think I can work this Sunday. God will understand. You hear that a lot. God will understand. He's, he's not that strict. <laughs> Think again. But doesn't mean that he's not loving when he does that. God is always loving. He's still the same God. And he's always going to be faithful. And he's always going to be good. So when we talk about the 10th plague... God still being God. He's not being cruel. He's not being unreasonable. He's not being any of that. So not being unfair to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God said what he was going to do. He was going to make Pharaoh experience the very thing that he put the Israelites through. Remember at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2, 3? What did Pharaoh do? tell the midwives to do? Kill all the baby boys. Why? Because he was afraid that they were going to raise up an army, the Israelites, because they were multiplying so much that they were going to raise up an army to go against him. So God said, kill all their babies. Midwife said, no, we're not going to do that. What happened next? He told regular citizens, kill all the babies. And God is doing the same thing here. Very thing that Pharaoh put the Israelites through, God is putting on to Pharaoh. So when you look at this and someone who doesn't know God, looking at the 10th plague will give them a wrong view of God. But those who do know God, uh, those who know the God of their salvation, the 10th plague should remind them of three things about God. Okay? What are these three things? One is that God is patient. 
Two, God will always be faithful. And three, God will save those who are his at any cost. Let me just unpack those three things quick. God's patient. How many times did God give Pharaoh to change his mind? Ten. I don't even give my kids ten. I don't count to ten. I count to three. Right? When you tell your kids, one more, two, three. Sometimes I don't even get to three. I just say one. Boom. Done. Right? Palo right away, right? God gave Pharaoh ten. How patient is God, some of us have been living 50, 60, 80 years. You've gotten 80 years of patience. How patient is God? Every time a plague came, God warned. Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. Second, God will be faithful no matter what. God's word is sure. Can you, can you, can you amen to that? His word is sure. This is good news. Amen? amen? Those who didn't say amen is because it's bad news for you. <laughs> right? Because God's word is sure, his threats are sure as well. So if you didn't say amen, you're probably, oh, man, I hope not. I'm sorry, but no, God's word is sure. Good news for those being saved, bad news for those who... Are not. Because what God says will happen will actually happen. Faithful. Those of you who are sleeping, you didn't say amen. <laughs> Third, God will actually restore everything back to its original state. There is no stopping this. Even though it may not look like it right now with everything that is going on in our world today, and I said this last week, the leaven that God hid or inserted in this world when Christ first came is working. It will finish its work in those who believe. It's working. It's hidden. It's small but it's working. Leaven that is in each and everyone here when it comes to our faith. Working. I hope. And it will finish the job. That's what leaven does. Right? And it will happen. God will finish the work in those who believe. And then God will establish his kingdom. God's people who are those who are in Christ will be gathered. And these are not just professing Christians, but the ones whose lives reflect the one they follow. Will there be a mixture of God's people that are saying, I'm Christian, but they're really not? Yes, we saw that in the parables that I mentioned last week. Weeds and wheat are going to grow together. And it's not our job to judge who's who. Because uh, I can sit here and say, weed, 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 weed. <laughs> weed. Sleeping? Weed. That's dead giveaway. But that's not our job. Our job is to work the land. 
continue to spread the seed of the gospel. Wherever it may fall, God determines the soil that it will grow into. But having said that, God's kingdom will be established. There's no stopping that. And this is going to happen. This kingdom rebuilding project is going to happen through the pains of childbirth, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. And after that will come the revealing of the sons of God. The true sons of God will be revealed at that time. Can you guys read this? Romans 8, 18 to 25. Ah, they're not ready for it. Oh, there you go. Can you guys read that? So we're in this right now. We're in this place in history, salvation, redemptive history, where we have this thing called hope. We know that we're supposed to be saved, taken away from all this, but it hasn't happened yet. And we can't wait for that day when the true sons and daughters of God will be revealed. Your name will be called. Right? I can't wait for that day. Uh, my brother Stanley is here. A couple of weeks ago, we did the funeral of his father, and I said the same thing. Every time I do funerals, I say the same thing. I, I envy those who have passed on. Believers that have passed on, I envy them. Because they get to see everything that we just talk about. I want to see it. Right? But do I have hope that I am going to see it one day? Yes. But that hope is like that groaning. It's, come on, let's go already. Where is it? One day it will be revealed to us. Uh, and I can't wait for that, that day. That's what the 10th plague shows us as far as our final destination is concerned. That there is something that's going to happen that will be bad, hard. But through that... It's death. It's death. Uh, if you believe in the rapture, good. I, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm, uh, when it comes to my eschatology, I'm still flaky, but rapture sounds good. I like rapture. Yeah, get me there. Um, but, yeah, even James White. You know James White? James White, he's an apologist. He used to be pre-trib. I don't know, post-trib. Now he's... Leaning towards, oh, wow, rapture. 
<laughs> rapture. Maybe if I study a little bit more, I will see that it is the rapture. But for now, I'll wait. If we get raptured, I believe in the rapture. Uh, if we don't get raptured, then I don't believe in the rapture. Um, but I can't wait for that. That's what the 10th plague is showing us. Something's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. This groaning, something will happen. But in it, the revealing will come of the sons of God. That's what happened in the Exodus. After the 10th plague, which was a really bad scene, if you think about it, you're sitting at home waiting for this thing to come up. And it's not like the, the, the destroyer is just going to pass by you. No, he's going to look at the door first. You'll see this light in front of your door. And you hope you didn't mess up and put the, the wrong blood on the door. <laughs> that is going to come in. And that's it. Your generation is done. The firstborn is gone. Imagine sitting there and just, oh man, here it comes. Here it comes. But if, you're, if the blood is on the, the doorpost, you can sit there and relax. You can even have the Passover meal. It's all good. Right? Who wants to do that on the, when judgment day comes? You're lined up. Oh man, it's my turn. I wonder what he's gonna say. Do I I have I don't know you? Or well done, good and faithful servant. Who here is not sure? <laughs> you better be sure. You better be sure. That's not the that that's not the time to be like, I don't know, Lord. You have the wrong blood on me? I don't that's not the time. That plague shows us that. When the plague comes, that's it. Right? But this plague, again, even though, yes, it's a bad situation that happened that time, it, it gives us a picture of our final destination. So we can rest assured that when that time comes, and we're seeing signs of it right now, uh, that when that time comes, even though we're, whether we're, we get raptured or whether we don't, we can rest assured that when that time comes, the freedom, the greater freedom that is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been waiting for is also coming. Uh, so we can take uh, assurance in that. Right? And when this thing comes, our freedom comes with it. Right? So now, so that's one thing that the 10th plague shows us. Our final destination as far as Christians are concerned. That we are going to be freed. Okay? The other thing that the 10th plague shows us um, is our present spiritual journey. Okay? It's like asking the question, what now? So after the 10th plague and the, the Israelites get kicked out uh, of Egypt, what now? After being freed from slavery, what does God have planned for the Israelites? Now we're going to try to answer this question from, again, a kingdom perspective. What's the definition of the kingdom of God? God's people under God's rule, in God's place, and blessing. Right now, we're only at the first. God's people. God took a people for himself, a people uh, to himself, for himself, and promised to save them from slavery to Egypt, and he did that. So the transfer of ownership is now happening as the people of Israel prepare to leave Egypt. 
Instead of the Israelites being Pharaoh's slaves, they are now people of God. Once they make their way out of Egypt, the next step in the kingdom perspective is for them to learn to be under God's rule. And this process is uh, taking leaven, the leaven of Egypt, out of the people of Israel. Remember, I said this during the study of the unleavened bread, that the pointer or the unleavened bread, the, the, that feast, is a pointer to a detachment from Egypt. God is saying, don't take anything from there to where we're going. Leave that stuff there. In that sense, leaven is being used as a pointer to sin. Influence of Egypt, right? What is the influence of Egypt? They have multiple gods. That's the number one influence. So God's saying, leave that stuff there. Don't take it with you. That's why he said, take unleavened bread. Okay? It has nothing to do with the actual leaven, but the influence of Egypt. So cut that off before you come with me. Right? That's what the, pointer, uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is pointing to. To cut it off, leave it behind. So if the Israelites are to be God's people, they will not only move to God's place, meaning a change of scenery or a geographical change, but also they must, must learn to be under God's rule. So not just an external place as far as where their living is concerned, but also internal. Must learn to live under God's rule. The Israelites would need to reacclimate themselves. Or in other words, learn to live as people of God. Why does this have to happen? How long were they in Egypt? 430 years. Okay, let me ask you this. Those of you who have been here in Canada 10 plus years, raise your hand. 20 plus years. 30 plus years. 40 plus years. Ooh, Stanley. Go back to your hometown. The first time I went back, I was shocked. It was a culture shock, right? First time I went back to the Philippines, the first thing that shocked me was when people just were eating, chewing gum, and they just throw the wrapper on the street. That's shocking to me. When I first came back, I was here, how many years was I? 18 years. Came back there, people, you know, in the Philippines, you have to go pee. You don't go look for a washroom. Any wall will do. <laughs> Sometimes in front of the sign that says, Bawal that's Right? Shocking to me. Big sign. Don't throw garbage here. Bawal magtapo ng basura dito. Underneath, big pile of garbage. Shocking. Culture shock. Because I'm not used to that. Here, right? People here line up to get on the bus. There? No. <laughs> it's shocking. It's shocking when we went to, uh, we were with the young people, we went to Japan. In the subway, you go to Japan and everybody's quiet. You ride the train quiet. Our young people were like all loud. We were telling them, oh, you gotta be quiet, you gotta be quiet. Then we went to the Philippines. 
Or no, we went to the Philippines first. In the Philippines, loud all the time. Right? So it's shocking. What do you think these people are going through right now? They're in Egypt for 430 years. Got used to that, you know, grind. Work, eat, work, eat, multiply, work, eat, multiply, work. And then all of a sudden they're free. You wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> all of a sudden you get your freedom. It's a shocking change, right? Culture shock. Change of environment. So they have to get reacclimated to that. You know where, where that term comes from? I was just watching a um, documentary on Mount Everest, climbing Everest. Every time the people climb Everest, they have to reacclimate themselves to the, the height because the air gets thinner. So there are camps. So there's base camp at the foot of Mount Everest. That's the first camp that you got to go to. That's already high, by the way. So you have to stay there for a, a week to just get your breathing right and all that stuff. Then you go to Camp 1, which is higher. Okay? In Camp 1, they stay there again for another few days so that they can reacclimate. So they know how to live in that environment. And then they get to Camp 2, another few days. And then they reach the summit. When you get to Camp 2, there's no choice. You have to do oxygen because it's just too high up. Um, so that's what it means to reacclimate, get used to living in that kind of environment. The Israelites are used to the rule of Pharaoh. Hard hand, slavery, violence. Now they're coming into the rule of God as God's people. Big change, right? Those of us who are new believers here, those of us who are just become Christian, it's a big change. Unless you're still who you are before you became a Christian, nothing changed with you. But really, it's, that's not even possible. You have to reacclimate yourself. Because this is how we're built. This is how we were designed to be. Right? So the people of Israel have to reacclimate themselves. They have to learn how to live as people of God. And when we look at this part of the story, this is where we can say, oh yeah, I can relate now. The slavery, maybe we can't relate. The plagues, can't really relate. But this part of the story, we'll be able to relate. Because this is the part of the story that we're in. We're in the wilderness right now. God just took us out. Those of you who have been saved for however many years, you've been in the wilderness for that, that long. Right? This is God's way of putting us under his rule. Marriage is God's way of sanctifying you, putting you under his rule. You guys, you're, you're, yeah? Church, God's way of putting you under his rule. Rule. That's why church membership is so important. A lot of people, they don't think about church membership as important. The main thing is because they don't want to put themselves under submission to the leaders of the church. I just want to get in and out. I don't want to be told what to do. I'm tempted to ask who is not a member here. <laughs> yeah, but that's what it is. 
A lot of people, a lot of Christians, they don't become members of the church, so I can just leave whenever I want, come back whenever I want, serve whenever I want, not serve. That's not how it works. That's why Paul refers to it as a body. But anyway, that's what it is. It's putting yourself under and learning how to live under that kind of environment. That's what God is doing here in Exodus as they exit Egypt. That's what God has been doing to those of us who are saved. What does Paul say? Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery and then it says in 513 for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another why do you think paul is telling them this there's a lot of grace abusers right i got my license i can do whatever those of you who learn how to drive here, when I first learned how to drive, obviously when you're with your instructor or your dad, for in my case, and when you take the exam, you follow all the rules. Got to get my license. Follow all the rules. Once they give you the license, oh, guess what? Speed limits? Ah. Rules? I'm free. I got my license. For a lot of Christians, it's the same. I got my license. I profess faith. I believe. Now I can do whatever I want. Come to church whenever I feel like it. Attend Bible study whenever I feel like it. By the way, uh, our Wednesday prayer meeting, we started off 20 connections. We're down to six. Where's everybody? There's a term in, in Tagalog for that, right? Ningas Kogon. If we're supposed to be mirroring, manifesting the image of God, God doesn't start something and not finish it. It's very simple, right? Because if he did, if, if that's God, then we're all screwed. I shouldn't be saying that. Is that a swear word? Screwed? No. But that's what it is. For a lot of Christians, is that, that's what it is. And not just when it comes to prayer meeting. Sometimes when it comes to the actual life as a believer, they stop growing because I, I've already reached the pinnacle. No, you haven't. This is not the end of the road. Right? If you look at, the, if you look at the, what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5.1, don't waste your freedom for that. You weren't freed so that you can do whatever you want in this world. You were afraid so you can be taken out of this world. So don't waste your freedom for that. Continue to grow. Uh, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. God didn't bless us with the greatest gift to use the, okay, of freedom from penalty, freedom from eternal damnation. We weren't freed so that we can just do whatever we want here. We are freed for a purpose. Kingdom building. So our story shifts 
from God taking a people to himself, for himself, to God restoring, or should I say making a people to himself, training a people for himself with the bigger picture of his kingdom restoration project in mind. And that change begins with the institution of the Passover. What's the difference between the institution of the Passover and the first time the Passover instructions were given? Passover instructions, the first time it was given, what? It was so they could be saved from the 10th plague. If they didn't do it, they were, they were done. Right? Now, this institution is so that they can continue to remember that. That's the first thing God does to change people to be under his rule, to reacclimate them or acclimate them to live under his rule, remind them of the Passover, to remind them of how they were saved. We just did that for three weeks, four weeks. Remind you how you were saved, those of you who are saved. We're going to take a look at that because there are some parts in there that kind of are questioned, right? What's the question there that you guys saw when we read it? No foreigner shall eat. Or if you have any slaves that were, that were bought as slaves, they are to be circumcised. Right? Don't you ask those questions when you read this? Stuff? The other question that I had was, okay, circumcision is usually, as described in Scripture, is taken off the foreskin. What about the women? Do they need to be circumcised? Is there circumcision of women? So what, what about the women? Are they, are they not saved? None of you guys are saved? All the women here? <laughs> okay, so those are the things we're going to take up next week. Why is the Passover, the institution of it, so important? And why are these rules so important? Come back next week. I hope to see you all again. Amen. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. And make his face to shine upon Gracious, gracious, gracious.